Hi there, this is Jörg Thomeyer. I'm the head of IP of the Bayer Group and you are listening to IP Fridays. Hello and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 41 of IP Fridays. Our interview guest today is Jörg Thomeyer, who is currently serving as head of IP of the Bayer Group. And we will chat about compulsory licenses and India. We also have an interesting story about a recently published decision of the German Federal Court of Justice about color trademark, the color red. And Ken has the latest news about the reforms of the European Community Trademark System. So, Ken, what do you have for us? Rolf, if all goes smoothly, the community trademark will be known as the European Union trademark, and the Office for Harmonization in the Internal Market will be called the European Union Intellectual Property Office. These changes are part of a package of trademark reforms that are expected to be implemented sometime in 2016. The reforms will need to be approved by the European Parliament and then implemented by the member states in Europe. It is anticipated that these reforms will be part of a harmonization of national trademark laws with respect to the CTM or European Union trademark. The changes we can expect include the following. First, the graphic representation requirement will be deleted from the application process. This is to accommodate non-traditional trademarks such as sound marks and scent marks, which are becoming more popular in Europe. Applicants will still need to describe their marks using an appropriate form generated by available technology. Second, the days of claiming class headings in the European Union trademark will be over. The applicant will need to clearly specify the applicable goods and services. This is a major change in trademark practice in Europe. If a trademark applicant applied for a CTM before June 22, 2012, there will be a six-month grace period for applicants to clarify the scope of their goods and services. The applicable grace period will commence when the new regulations are put into full force and effect. Third, holders of EU trademarks will have greater powers for enforcement. These will include taking action against preparatory acts of trademark infringement and stopping goods that are being shipped in transit in Europe without the trademark owner's authorization. Finally, we can expect a change in filing and renewal fees. The filing fee and the renewal fee will only cover one class of goods or services. This will be a departure from the coverage of up to three classes per filing fee. If you file electronically, you can expect the filing fee for one class to be 850 euros. The second class will cost you 50 euros, and each class beyond the second class will be 150 euros. The renewal fees will track the new filing fee structure. Overall, these changes will produce lower renewal fees in the European Union, and that's good news to hear. For IP Fridays, I'm Ken Suzanne. Thank you, Ken. 
So the German Federal Court of Justice recently published a decision called Santander Red. And I find this decision quite interesting because, in my opinion, it introduces quite a big change in the case law. The court basically decided that if a colliding sign, let's say if you have a trademark red and someone else uses the color red, in this case for financial services, that you cannot get an injunction against the potential infringer if the infringer is using the sign only and purely as a company indicator and not uh, as a mark. So using a sign purely as a company indicator was not considered uh, use as a mark. And according to the German Trademark Act, only a use as a mark can be considered trademark infringement. That was very interesting for me to see. And if you want to read the full decision, you can go to www.ipfridays.com red ipfridays.com slash red, R-E-D. Be warned, the decision is in German. So let's head straight into the interview with Jörg Thomeyer. I'm very excited to be joined by Jörg Thomeyer today. If you don't know who Jörg Thomeyer is, he is currently serving as head of IP of Bayer Group. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to explain maybe a couple of things out of the IP world and specifically of Bayer in this interview. So many thanks for the opportunity. So uh, one topic we want to cover today is uh, compulsory licenses for drugs in developing countries. Some of our listeners are not familiar with the issue of compulsory licenses. So can you explain what a compulsory license is and how compulsory licenses are affecting the pharma industry? Yeah, of course, with pleasure. Um, a compulsory license is uh, what the name already, I think, um, shows or let people think about. It's the non-voluntary license. So in, in, to, in difference to a voluntary license where a patentee licenses his um, or her exclusive rights to a licensee, um, it's a license which is in place by court order or by any order of an authority which is in place or in charge to issue such licenses on behalf of a government in a country. What it does, it, it forces um, the license source or the patentee to license its rights under conditions which are already put in place by such authority. So scope and consideration, so for example the royalties on that, are defined by the authority and not between the parties. So finally what it does, it more or less expropriate the patentee of his patent. Not fully in the sense as there are usually royalties or other considerations connected to this compulsory license, but usually they are much lower than marked standards. So it's not what you, you as the patentee can usually realize out of this IP right. And that means in the context of the pharma industry that it puts the opportunity which is um, provided by IP to pharma industry to recoup the huge research and development costs by a free exploration of the right um, and so diminishes in a, in a certain sense the income which could be generated and therefore the capability to recoup the financial investment in R&D. 
So that's basically what the comp compulsory license is about and what's the direct impact to pharma industry. The impact would be to any industry, but as pharma is much more um, dependent from the opportunity to get the money, the investment back through IP, the impact is, I think, one of the harshest in the pharma industry compared to others. Right. So um, typically a compulsory license is asked for to bring down the prices of drugs. Um, compulsory licenses typically can only be issued under certain circumstances, such as uh, national emergencies or other circumstances of extreme urgency. There is a Doha declaration on the, on the TRIPS that tries to define what national emergencies or other circumstances of extreme urgency are. Can you briefly summarize the Doha declaration and tell us what this means for the pharmaceutical companies such as Bayer? Of course. Uh, well, Doha defines the circumstance in which the members of the WTO and TRIPS may issue compulsory licenses due to what you already said, national emergencies or epidemics, so health emergencies, um, either by themselves, so these the countries who, and that's maybe one of the weaker points of the declaration, who could, could declare themselves that they are in emergency, either they themselves issue a compulsory license to a generic or non-generic, but a pharmaceutical producer in their country to produce the product to get out of the emergency. Or the second um, option which Doha provides is to ask another country to issue a compulsory license to produce and let them export into this country. So they can ask a third country, please let your local industry produce on our behalf. This license is then restricted exactly to that purpose, but that's another option in Doha. But the main thing, it's strictly um, restricted to emergencies. So, the, so there need really to be a health threat to a country or the population of a country. There need to be a huge epidemic in that country, something like this. Um, and from our point of view, my point of view, sometimes it's a little bit misused from some, some sense so that it's considered an emergency where you can really doubt, is it really an emergency? However, one of the preconditions um, which are in place in Doha, in addition, is that first of all, the countries, the governments shall talk to the patentee and ask for a solution on a voluntary basis of the patentee. So either that the patentee himself says, no problem, we're going to produce enough and deliver it to your country to fight the epidemic. Then there is, that's my understanding of Doha, no option to issue a compulsory license because the patentee is prepared and able to deliver the amount. That could also be done by a volunta voluntary license of the patentee with a partner and through that there is a sufficient amount delivered to the country. Only if this approach fails, so if, let's take my company, if Bayer says, I'm sorry, we can't deliver sufficient amount of this drug and we don't have partners who are in that position and we are not willing to license partners to do so, then a country is under Doha entitled to solve it by compulsory license. So um, the Australian government just enacted the Intellectual Property Laws Amendment Act of 2015, which just came into effect on August 25, 2015. So this reform enables generic Australian medicine producers to manufacture and export patented pharmaceutical products to developing countries to address public health problems. 
other countries look into the same direction. What is your point of view? Well, I generally see a problem if you undermine the proven IP system as the support for pharmaceutical industry in any way outside of Doha. So um, in Doha, you have to have this appropriate request that you have an emergency. You first ask the patentee, as I just described uh, in the question uh, before. But if you extend this and say, well, in general, production for exportation in, let's say, a patent-free country is not a patent violation in your own country, of course, helps a lot your local generic industry. And it's very welcome by most of the generic industry because it enables them to legally produce a patented drug yeah, in a country where this, patent, this drug is patented. And of course, if they deliver it to non-patented countries, which are patent-free, for example, you could say that shouldn't be a problem, which is true. But the problem is it under undermines the system in a, in a much broader sense. Because what we see in cases where someone is somewhere entitled to produce legally, despite patents, you may see exportation of the copy in large amounts, in large amounts into a country which falls under the regulation. So let's assume into a country of patent, an amount which is definitely too high to be consumed in that country. And this amount then through distributors find their then illegal way in countries where there is a patent. For the patentee, that means we have to find, hunt, prosecute in each and every country these illegal copies. I'm not talking about the official target country where it may be off patent or free of patent protection, but because it leaks into other countries and it may even be used as kind of a distribution channel. And that makes it difficult because to um, safeguard the rights, the patentee is usually in the position, and it was in Australia also, to stop the production at the source because it's that's the legal right of, of IP. And then you have to look after it in all these countries where it may leak in. And in with this effect, it undermines the whole position on a global basis, so to speak, and, and not not intended basis, because if you would ask, I'm 100% sure the Australian government, they do not intend to let their industry infringe our patents in other countries. So that's not the idea, but that will, I'm pretty sure, happen, and, and that's the problem in this kind of regulation. And I know that, um, or we know that generic industries lobbying for similar regulations, for example, also in Europe. Yeah, that production for exportation should be out of scope of the rights of a patentee. But with the just described effects, I think this is a much huge impact on the overall system and value of, of the system than it looks at the first glance. And uh, if I remember right, uh, usually the patent act of each country also says that producing um, a product also falls under the claims of the of product claims. So. Um, Absolutely. Right. And that's why it's a change in the Australian patent law, because also Australian patent law, of course, um, covers manufacturing. So manufacturing right. of a patented drug is forbidden under patent law. What they now did is that they said, if this manufacturer is only for exports or not for use in Australia, it's fine. And that's a problem. It's not the Doha example. That would be that, let's say, um, a developing country like just accident by not for purpose, take Burkina Faso as one of the least developed countries in, 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 in Africa, would have a health problem. 
and would then ask Australia, after having talked to the patentee, of course, and failed, to issue a compulsory license to an Australian generic to deliver the compound, the product, to Burkina Faso to work with the epidemic. That's fine, that's Doha, that's what we all signed up to. But this general disclaimer from export, it's okay, that's a real tough hit, I would say, the patent system takes. Mm, right. Some countries like India seem to be more generous than other countries when it comes to compulsory licenses. What is your take on this? So how does Bayer deal with this? And my personal take, and I think I can say it's also Bayer's take on this, is that the motivation um, of this very generous compulsory license policy in India is, of course, very um, national protection for the generic industry. India is the largest hub of generic medicine in the world because up to a couple of years ago, they had no patent protection for pharmaceutical products. So their generic industry could always immediately after a new drug was known on the world market, copy and sell it in India and in any free of patent markets in the world. Then India wanted to be, let's say, closer part of the WTO, signed gut trips, became obliged to also protect pharmaceutical compounds, did so in their patent law, but then they tried to keep the impact on the generic industry as low as possible. And one of the instruments for that is the relative excessive compulsory licensing definitions in the Indian law, which go, from my perspective, um, beyond um, Doha and the WTO regulations. I mean, of course, the Indian government sees it different, but my personal perspective is, is that there are a couple of things like the um, need of, of the public or even local manufacturing, which could be reasons for a compulsory license in India. Um, it's called under working of patents, which every country had, but India even sees it as an um, obligation to have some kind of local manufacturing. And that's, from my perspective, goes clearly beyond uh, Doha, WTO, and maybe even a breach of some WTO regulations, from my personal um, uh, perspective. But the idea is, of course, that they did that to keep the impact on their generic industry as small um, as possible. From my perspective and from Bayer's perspective, this is pretty short-sighted, because if they would um, have introduced a real strong enforceable IP um, regimen also on pharmaceutical products that would create definitely kind of a time gap where the generic industry would not be able to launch immediately every new drug as a copy but after a certain period of time because every expired one where the patent has expired every drug they could of course copy as every generic can so the flow of new products for the generics will come effective again once the expiration starts. So it's a couple of years of respecting patents, and then they can still respect patents, but have new new products. And so that's relatively short-sighted. How do we deal with it? Um, I think it's pretty easy. How do we deal with it? We still file our patents there, <clears throat> and we enforce it. That's general strategy and policy at Bayer. Um, we see infringers. So if we see infringers, we don't let them go. If we do have valid IP rights, we use them, we enforce them. In parallel, of course, we try to participate also in the, in the opinion process and in the, let's say, because the regimen of um, patents is, and the use of it is relatively new for India, especially in the active ingredient area, be it, be it um, healthcare or be it crop science. And we try to help wherever we can by explaining our position and explaining, like in this interview, what does the system mean for sustainable health policy to, let's say, 
help also Indian people and the Indian representatives to understand it, hoping that this leads to the point that they understand that the IP system also in India needs to be stronger in a sense of protecting new innovations also in the pharma field. So that's how we deal with it. Yes, I think just to add a little bit, a stronger IP regimen in India would probably also incentivize the pharmaceutical industry in India to become originators and maybe to do their own research, which would actually benefit the economy in India because of the, the profit margin would be much larger and so on and so on. So um, talking about India, let's briefly talk about efficiency follow-up patents. What are the efficiency follow-up patents and what does India have to do with it? Okay, so-called follow-up patents. What I mean with follow-up patents, for example, is um, I would say the group of follow-up patents consists, for example, out of formulation patents or to maybe to better understand for the for the auditory here is uh, galenic patents. So if I say formulation, I mean the composition which the real pharmaceutical product is about. It's not only the active, there are a couple of excipients and so on with it in the formulation. And sometimes this composition is also patentable. The other thing is salts or specific crystalline forms of a compound, which could also be susceptible to, to patentability. And these kind of follow-up um, patents are not the real compound patents or not the original compound patents, but they may contribute a lot to the validity or to the effectiveness um, or the, the, let's say, usability of a pharmaceutical product. So I give you, I'm happy to give you two examples. Let's take one not of Bayer, but and, and pretty much known in India. It's Gleevec of Novartis. Um, in Gleevec, Novartis had to find a specific salt to make the compound finally sufficiently bioavailable. So find a way the, the real compound, which works on the molecular level in your body, being in a form which is up, taken up enough through your stomach and your digestion system to have it in a sufficient level in the bloodstream to have the effect which is desired. The pure compound, the molecule, without having kind of a salt out of it, um, does not um, get in high enough amounts into the bloodstream to work. So basically to make it really effective in a sense of bioavailable as a medicine, this follow-up invention was almost more important than the compound itself. Another one, that's now Bayer, Cyprofloxacin, pretty known, world-known antibiotic against lots of bacteria strains, is extremely bitter. And therefore, beside tablets, it was almost impossible to formulate it as a syrup, as a suspension, for people who have difficulties to swallow or kids who have difficulties to swallow tablets. And it was a huge invention yeah, to, in, to um, invent, for that purpose, microencapsulation, who made ciprofloxacin even as a suspension, because it's microencapsuled, um, uptakeable without having this so bitter effect that you, you, you really just couldn't swallow it, so bitter is this product. And so it made it available only this way to patients who have difficulties to swallow. So also here, for these pac patients, this part of the inventions, was extremely important. Um, I'm, I'm saying that there are applications out there on formulations which may not be so inventive as these two which I just mentioned. So um, the issue is, of course, you have to have a good examination if an invention is really an invention, so new and inventive, um, even and especially for follow-up patents. But these kind of inventions are still valid to become patents. 
So, now what has India to do with it? <clears throat> India, in their uh, in effort to, and I think part of this effort is quite, for me, acceptable and fair, to have a stringent examination system, they put in their law additional hurdles, how I call, would call it, Section 3D, which says that formulations, forms, and that means, for example, salts and crystalline forms of a known compound, so the act, on a molecular level active molecule, are not patentable if they do not show enhanced efficacy. Now, of course, these kind of follow-ups very, very rarely show an enhanced efficacy on a molecular level. And that's how the Indians deal with the sentence up to now. There's a little bit of a movement and change in the policy of the Indian Patent Office, but that was the beginning at least. Um, so it definitely, effectively, therefore, um, made it almost impossible to get patents on follow-up inventions, even if they are important. Gleevec was exactly revoked for that reason, the patent of Novartis. Um, and it is definitely an invention, an, an important invention. So, um, what I say is here that um, it's absolutely okay and fair, also within WTO and TRIPS, if a country says we use higher inventiveness hurdles than some other countries. That's fine. But two conditions for that. First of all, um, it should not be something kind of a additional hurdle because that's not allowed under WTO, additional hurdles. And second of all, it should count for all kinds of inventions. That's an anti-discrimination part of WTO trips. And if you talk about active ingredients and efficacy, it's basically specific to the chemical industry. So that's something where you can doubt if this is okay. Yeah. So from a, from a legal perspective. Um, however, as said, if it would be just that they say we want to have higher inventiveness standards, I would be fine with it. But focusing on effective e efficacy only makes it too small. Because I could imagine also um, inventions which are important to make compounds more um, convenient for the body, yeah? um, to reduce side effects, for example, to avoid phototoxicity, which some compounds have, to make shelf life longer, which makes it better distributable, even in, in more far range um, uh, areas of countries. But that's all excluded by saying it's only okay if it enhances efficacy on a molecular level. So that's basically my, my problem with that on the Indian regulation. And, but that's what's called follow-up hands. Mm. And um, while we are at the topic of India, maybe there is one thing that uh, is quite probably interesting to our listeners. Um, in contrast to many other countries, India has introduced four different ways to destroy patents. Uh, can you briefly summarize these four options? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in their efforts to, that's my reading now, in their efforts to protect the generic industry and keeping the, the, the patent effect low, India introduced, I would call it all globally known four ways to destroy patents, which is oppositions, which means that's an um, administrative proceeding before the patent office, where third parties can file reasons why a patent should not be granted or should not have been granted. We call it pre-grant opposition if this proceeding is before grant and post-grant opposition if you can do it after grant of a patent. The latter is pretty frequent and known in a lot of jurisdictions. So Europe also has a post-grant opposition uh, system, but India has both. So as a third party, you can file before grant an opposition, 
prolonging the prosecution, challenging the patent. Now it's granted and you can find it again as a post-grant opposition. So again, a chance to kill the patent. So these are two already. Then they have independent opportunity to file invalidation suits, nullification suits, also available in a lot of countries. In some countries, take Japan, it's only that they abolished opposition because they said as nullification is always possible, we don't need an opposition proceeding. Compare it to Europe, we have the opposition on a European level, and then depending from the countries, there may be nullifications on a country level. Fourth one is counterclaim in an infringement suit. In some countries available, in some not, but only in Indian, in India also available. So that's the fourth option. And you can drive it even further, um, as I mentioned before, under the compulsory licensing, because this is kind of an expropriation or kind of an devaluation of your patent. I would rather say that these couple of reasons you find in the Indian law to file compulsory license and how they grant it could almost be seen as a fifth option. So there are really uh, a lot of ways to weaken or destroy patents in India which are in some unique in the world. Mm. Not one by one, but overall having all of them in place, that's pretty unique. So, well, thank you very much for being on the interview. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, where could they reach you? I think there are basically two options which I would offer. One is just Google me and find me on LinkedIn, and then you can get in touch via LinkedIn. Or if you want to go directly, I would offer my email address, which is jörg.tomeyer at bayer.com. I phrase it more precisely. It's jörg, it's J-O-E-R-G dot, and then my surname t-h-o-m-a-i-e-r and then at buyer.com that's basically the email address so if you want to get in touch drop me a mail i will try to get back to you as soon as possible thank you very much for the interview you're welcome my pleasure that's it for this episode If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.